Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr. Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have around 6,000 members worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 8th of November 2021 and this is episode 230. On this week's podcast, I talk to Dr Ida Mill, lecturer in European history at Carlo College in Ireland, about her recent book, Stacking the Coffin. This book examines the impacts of the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic in Ireland at the end of the Great War and in the early 1920s. Her book is published by Manchester University Press. Ida spoke to me over the interweb from her home in Ireland. Ida, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Spanish flu and its impact on Ireland? Thanks very much for having me on, Tom. Um, I was doing an MA in history in Maynooth in 2005. And part of that was, uh, you know, a a short dissertation. And um, uh, it was a taught MA. So I I was mentioned um, to the uh, head of the course said, um, you know, there's this topic to do a dissertation on the flu. And um, I said, you know, there's nothing being done on it, and but there is stories in the newspapers. And he turned to me and said, well, are there the sources? Will you have more than that? And um, I, um, you know, had the shyness of um, the late entrant into academia and uh, thought he was saying, no, to go away for it. So I went back, I went uh, back and had a look and found indeed loads of data. I already knew Um, that the newspapers were there because in a previous life I had been working in independent newspapers um, in the library and I had under my charge the the microfilm um, of the independence um, group of newspapers and I had come across the story of the flu when the then editor of the Evening Herald, Paul Drury, um, asked me to research something on the sinking of the Leinster um, a mail boat and passenger ship in in off the east coast, just outside Dublin, in October 1918. Now, this story was something that people were, were very well aware of uh, when I was growing up, and and indeed was I think in our histories as well. Um, but when I started to look at the newspapers to research the sinking of the Leinster, you know, there was 560, 100, 560 people, um, the great and the good of Irish society um, killed on that. I realised it was about 500 a day actually dying from this flu that was running through uh, Dublin at the time. And um, that's when I first got interested in it, and then, which would have been about, Oh, 1998, uh, because he was looking at it for the anniversary. And um, then again, uh, when I went in 2005 to, to do my, my MA dissertation, um, and I started working on it, and I suppose really fell in love uh, with what was a very difficult topic, because uh, it wasn't what I call one box history, uh, where you can go and get everything you need uh, for your PhD D, uh, research from one or two boxes in an archive, which some people are lucky enough to have. 
but something that really stretched and challenged me both for the MA and then for my PhD and indeed in my work ever since. It's the flu as a subject is a great teacher, uh, which I think people would probably understand more now than they did pre-pandemic, um, because it really infiltrated every aspect of, of Irish life at the time. And you might find a line or two about it in nearly every record. Um, but apart from the newspapers and the uh, statistics of the Registrar General, um, often what you did find in archives was quite limited. And indeed, it mightn't even say that it was flu. It might say when that terrible thing happened last year or the dread disease that was around earlier in these times. Uh, so you would be literally trying to interpret what they were saying. And indeed, early on in my research, um, I would often ask in archives, was there anything of the great flu in there? And they'd say, oh, no. And in more recent years, since the story has come better known, they'll come back and say, oh, yeah, I found it. But it didn't actually say flu. You know, it said plague or um, what happened last year or something like that. So um, I finished my MA and got a first for it, thanks to a good dissertation and a nice topic. And then really wanted to, I, I felt I wasn't done with the topic. So I went into uh, Trinity and did a PhD there under, under David Dixon. And um, within a couple of weeks of starting that, I was delving into statistics, trying to create the database to say, yes, this was a thing. It wasn't, um, a, you know, it wasn't hyped up. It was it really was a thing. Um, and and should be, should be remembered. It, you know, we're talking about something. Um, that was the biggest killing flu on record. But in 2005, there was no written history of it in, in an Irish context. Which leads me to my second question. I think you've touched on this already. Why would you write a book on the flu? Um, exactly because it is such a subject, a big topic. And, and um, uh, it's been very little covered by Irish historians, barely mentioned. Um, I mean, people have written about the December 1918 uh, general election, but they never talk about the impact of the flu, both on the electorate or on uh, people like uh, on some of the people who are actually standing in the in for election at the time. There's loads of other events that happened um, around those times. And yet people never discuss the flu and the impact that, that it had on it. Now, this forgetting wasn't only in an Irish context. It also happened in an international context as well. Um, really, there was no major history of the flu in North America until Alfred Crosby wrote one. And that was really influential in the 70s and started the ball rolling. Um, and loads of people started then writing national or regional histories of, of the flu. There is an international network um, of um, Spanish flu researchers now uh, through different disciplines like historical demography and history um, and other disciplines. And, and, and um, uh, we're constantly looking for gaps in the literature to see what we might address or gets, you know, postgraduate students or graduate students to look at. So in an Irish context, I suppose then um, what happened was I began working on it, but at the same time, Katrina Foley in um, UCD and um, my great colleague, uh, Patricia Marsh in Queens, 
began working at it at the same time. And as it happened, we all went on to do our PhDs on it and covered it in quite different ways. And I'm really happy to say Katrina Foley's book was published in 2011, mine in 2018, and the third of the trilogy, if you like, uh, Patricia Marsh's will be published later this year. So So we all have quite different things to say about it. Could we start at the beginning and actually get to grips with what was the Spanish flu and why was it known as a Spanish flu? Well, we now know that it was an influenza A H1N1 flu. Um, We know that it emerged in the ember days of the war. And we know that um, when it arrived, the society was really primed to expect another, um, a big disease to come out of such a great war. And the newspapers were constantly saying this, you know, and they'd refer back uh, to uh, other wars, uh, which, you know, as, with your background, you'd know very well, you know, that the, the, when, when soldiers returned, they brought things like typhus and, and smallpox and, and other diseases like that back into the civilian population. So um, it was kind of expected. Uh, but when it arrived in May, uh, June 1918, at first people thought it wasn't uh, a flu because, of course, it was arriving out of season. Flus more typically arrived in winter. And because it had a few features which normal flu didn't seem to have, for example, that um, uh, it would turn um, the people who are about to die, often their bodies turned purple and then black. And this is because their lungs weren't working and couldn't oxygenate the blood. And the lungs were filled with all sorts of different body fluids. And um, so um, uh, this caused quite a lot of alarm and people thought it couldn't be a flu. Why it was called Spanish was because uh, broadly in the countries, um, the belligerent countries in the war, uh, there was um, censorship on their newspapers. So nobody was going to be saying, oh, um, you know, there's a terrible flu hitting the the, the allies in Ypres at the moment, uh, because that would give away, um, um, show weakness to an enemy. So nobody, no newspapers were talking about where the flu was hitting within the terms of the army at the moment. And some of the domestic countries then, the, the, some newspapers wouldn't talk about it even in their own countries. Uh, Scotland has very little in its newspapers about the flu, whereas the Irish newspapers have quite a lot. Um, people say, oh, it wasn't spoken about because uh, there was censorship. But actually, as I say, the Irish newspapers had quite a lot. Um, but Spain wasn't a belligerent country. And there was a particularly bad outbreak in the court of Alfonso Thirteenth, the young Spanish king. He got it in about 3,000 of his courtiers. So that was covered by the Spanish newspapers. So hence, that's how the moniker Spanish um, came and really stuck. So the flu starts to appear in Ireland in the second half of 1918. Whom did it affect? What were its symptoms? And how many waves were there um, after 1918? Well, not after 1918, but there were three waves altogether. The first is in May and June um, 1918. That affects, um, if you like, the northeastern quadrant of Ireland from Dublin up to the north coast. Um, the second wave um, that was May, June and really petered out by July. The second wave um, came back, uh, the, really the worst wave in Ireland uh, in October through December. And then the third wave uh, was in January through, through April 1919. And even halfway through April, the death 
uh, the numbers of dead suddenly start dropping quite acutely. And um, after that, it really didn't make any significant impact on the statistics, the numbers of, of dead. Um, but that flu did circulate until the 1950s, that strain of the flu, when it was replaced, when another pandemic occurred at that time. And what demographic was affected by this flu? Ah, um, really unusually for a flu, flus would more typically uh, hit at the weaker sectors of society. So the older people and the very young. The very young are a, a very vulnerable age group in Irish society at the time. Um, there was about 70,000 deaths per annum on the island any one year in the 1910s or 1900s. And of those, 20% would be children under the age of five who would die from you know, all sorts of um, infectious disease and from debilitation, from poverty uh, as well. So um, the flu did again hit them, but the unusual age cohort that it hit was um, young, strong and often uh, young, strong, uh, previously he healthy adults. Um, so you see here lots of accounts of um, a hammered thrower who lived beside me here in, in, in North Kildare, not that I was here at the time. Um, and um, I'm not quite that old. Um, uh, a cyclist, um, crack cycling ace, the newspapers described him as Joe Ross from Louth. Um, and lots of GA teams and et cetera were hit by it at the time. So this was a really unusual thing. And of course, the double sadness for that is that they were also most likely to be the parents of young children. So the, these two age groups being hit, it kind of ties into each other because if your child gets, uh, your infant gets sick, of course, you pick them up and then you might catch it even if you'd had it already or vice versa, that if you pick up your infant and you have the flu, you give it to them. So that, that, that it's kind of a natural thing. So, but very different from the kind of demographic that, that's, um, uh, that is affected now. How did society and individuals react to the flu uh, when it arrived in Ireland in the latter part of 1918? Um, in, in, in different ways. Um, I've done a lot of oral history interviews and some people knew it was coming. They'd read about it coming in the newspapers because there was a lot of mention of uh, the Transvaal, say, being um, uh, mining there, being knocked out because of the flu or... Um, talking generally about it sweeping across Europe in stories. Uh, so um, one lady I, I interviewed, um, her family would have been a middle-class family in, in, in Sandy Mount in Dublin. And she remembers uh, her parents holding a party and that they were all together in huddles. And she was the only child there. And she came in, she was five, and she came in and earwigged on them and she was sent away. Uh, so, of course, she she was she was a very bright girl and was already reading. And she went straight to the newspapers to find out and saw what they were talking about from there. Um, some places it would arrive and they had no clue it was coming. And rather like today, um, even though there was no quarantine or lockdown as such, it would come in to a community and everything would go still. That's where the, 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 the parallel is, you know, the stillness that we've seen in the last year in communities. But in this case, it was because A, people were afraid of going out, but B, uh, they were actually sick because by my reckoning, it made about one fifth of the island sick, about 800,000 people over the, that year. 
So it would spread around from community to community and and um, people would talk about how, you know, say that the singing that you'd normally hear in the canal here beside me, the, the Grand Canal in North Kildare, uh, uh, how the canal went silent. Or they'd talk about how um, shopping streets went silent um, as, as it would run through a town. And what would happen then also would be things like um, schools would be shut down. Children were considered to be super spreaders. So that, that, that shut down, they shut down quite quickly uh, when it had come into a town. Um, the shops would struggle to stay open, but um, they were suffering because both their staff were getting sick and not as many of their customers were coming out and about. Often uh, people would try to send somebody for the messages rather than, you know, the housewife coming and doing the shopping themselves. Um, and then things like law courts were closed, um, matches cancelled, all those kind of things uh, that we see now were happening as well. And how did government respond? Did well, um, the probably the most responsible body or the body that should have been responsible at the time was the local government board for Ireland, uh, which was based at the Custom House. And they operated the poor law medical dispensary uh, system, which covered about 70 percent of the population. The other proportion would have relied on on private uh, medicine. They pay for their own GP fees, etc. And then they had their local agents in the uh, what was usually the market towns, uh, the boards of guardians who ran um, the poor law unions at local level and and, um, uh, supervised and hired the staff. So the local government board for Ireland um, put no grand central plan into action. They were very laid back at the time. Um, They did a lot of nitpicking with the the boards of guardians uh, saying, you've ordered too much whiskey there, we're not paying for it, and this kind of thing. And whiskey was a common theme when you look at the board of guardians records, um, because um, at the time... Uh, there was no there was no suitable treatment. There was no effective treatment. But one of the things people found was that if they made a hot whiskey, the fumes would make people feel better. And obviously the alcohol content as well. And it would ease their symptoms a bit. Um, so at the time, every um, hospital or workers provisioning list would include, you know, in normal times anyway, uh, whiskey uh, to give to patients, you know, because they had is such a limit of, um, you know, so so limited access to medicine compared to what we have now. Um, so they were constantly complaining, saying, look, you know, we can't get whiskey. The, the, the local government board won't let us buy any more. And this kind of thing was happening. So in the absence of the local government board uh, for Ireland setting up a grand central plan, uh, what really happened was that um, uh, you know, somebody within maybe um, local authorities uh, or um, community groups would set up um, ways of caring for the people in their community. And one kind of hero hero who came out of it at the time was um, Sir Charles Cameron, who was the chief medical officer of health for Dublin. And his advice was constantly sought by the journalists. They would say, what should we do? And he'd say, look, once you get it, uh, go to bed and stay there until you're well better, uh, because some people die because they get out of bed too quickly. And of course, what happened was quite a lot of people would recover from the flu and they'd rush back to work. But then they'd catch pneumonia, uh, a bacterial infection from um, the flu and die from that. 
And then um, some places, uh, charitable organizations like um, the Women's National Health Association or um, the St. Vincent de Paul uh, might set up a, a soup kitchen in a school in a local town. I know of cases where that happened in, for example, Nace, and it also happened in, in Dundalk, and there are a few others around the country as well. Um, so they would get together what they called the good ladies of the town who would make nourishing uh, soups and porridge and stews, often with donations given by the local farmers of vegetables and potatoes and even meat. And um, then they would get another team to go around and deliver that to uh, people who were too sick to get out of bed uh, to feed themselves or to, to go and collect it themselves. And sometimes there was a small fee for it. It wasn't necessarily given out, out for nothing. But a lot of what happened too was neighbours helped neighbours. And I have um, scores of accounts of that in the oral histories I collected in, and in um, material that people give to me when I do history talks around the country. There was one fascinating account I collected only recently, February last year, from Baltinglass in County Wicklow, uh, where a gentleman in the audience told me that his father and uncle had been young men at the time, about 16 or 17, and that when this swept through their community, they were well, uh, but everybody else was more or less in bed. Um, so they would go around doing messages, making sure people had food, they'd what he, they'd clean out their fires and they'd set them again. They'd change their sheets. Um, they'd make sure that they, 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 they had meals and liquids. And they even emptied bedpans for them, he said, and, and, and chamber pots. And I've heard the same story from uh, County Carlo uh, in Lachlan Bridge, where the local priest um, took on the duties of the doctor and nurse in the town when they went sick. And he was feeding people bovril and likewise changing sheets and, 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 and cleaning people up and trying to feed them. So people did extraordinary things to keep their neighbours alive at the time. And what was the political impact of the flu? Obviously, there's a general election in 1918 and Sinn Féin win a vast number of seats across Ireland. Um, did, did the flu actually impact that election? The, the impact is delatable, debatable, but it's quite extraordinary that, you know, from perspective of military history, I suppose, is that um, when conscription, it seemed likely that conscription was going to be enforced in Ireland, uh, the government invented a thing called the German plot, which I'm sure you've heard. And uh, they rounded up uh, the leading anti-conscription campaigners. And that was in May 1918. And Sinn Féin, who, of course, were brilliant at propaganda, very quickly seeded in the newspapers the idea that um, if anything happened to these people in, while they were in jail, their health had often already been weakened by, by earlier incarcerations, as they pointed out, um, that they would be held to pay. So uh, there was over 60 of them. The number is quite fluid and changes um, because, um, you know, some were released and more were brought in over the uh, year or so that they that are 10 months that they, that they were detained. Um, they were brought to jails in, in Wales and, and in England. And they would have included people like Arthur Griffith. Arthur Griffith caught the flu. Um, he was very lucky to survive it. He swallowed bottles of quinine, which again was one of the main uh, tonics that people would use and would help to reduce fever. But quinine, we now know, is quite a uh, quite, um, strong uh, toxicant. And um, people who were watching him thought he was as likely to die from the cure as from the disease. 
And they said his eyes were pop popping out in stalks um, because he had swallowed so much of it. And he was really determined, you know, because he was a leader of men. I think he was 48 at the time. So he's one of the older people in jail. Uh, but he was really determined to look well, you know, so that the others wouldn't get disheartened. Um, uh, and he survived it. Uh, which, of course, you know, history would have been changed if he hadn't. Uh, Richard Coleman caught it and he died just before the December 1918 election. The newspapers, again, with Sinn Féin's carefully pro planted propaganda, were full of stories about how his brothers were kept outside in the pouring rain while he was dying inside and they were only let in after he died. Um, so his body was brought home, brought to Dublin, and brought into Pier Street Station, where um, the great and the good of the Irish um, nationalist movement were standing on the platform. There was about a thousand standing on the pla platform, including Mrs. Pierce, the mother of Porrick Pierce. And his body was then brought next door into um, Westland Road Church and was more or less kept in state there um, for, for a couple of days until after the election. So Sinn Féin used this as an opportunity to flood the newspapers um, with details about the funeral that was going to take place the day after the election on the election day, you know, that the Sherwood Foresters would stand here and the trade union movement would stand there and they'd all march out to, 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 to the, the, the um, cemetery in Glasnevin. So this was really uh, very strong in, in terms of propaganda content. Um, Kathleen Lynn um, talks in her members, they're the uh, revolutionary doctor. Uh, she talks about how the, 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 all the, the, the posters around the city were covered in black crepe and black uh, crosses uh, to point out what, what had happened um, to Richard Coleman uh, without trial, when he was detained without trial in, in, in an English jail or in a Welsh jail. Uh, Frank Gallagher suggests that it might have had um, an impact on the doubtful votes in the election. Um, that that was where he saw the, that it was a really making more concrete an already so solid vote. There was one further impact um, from the German plot when Pierce McCann uh, died on the 6th of March 1919. McCann had already been, he was elected an MP uh, for Tipperary East in that election. He was quite a, a popular figure, a very handsome man who um, had been known uh, to rescue some people from drowning and to be a very fine uh, look at cut a fine figure on a horse at the hunt and uh, this really hit very hard and again he was brought home um, uh, to first of all to Dublin and then put in a, a carriage at Houston Station uh, where the carriage the entire carriage was covered with a very large Sinn Féin flag and he was brought down along the train line. The train would almost stop going through all the stations on the way and people would come out to pay the respects in each of the stations along the way. And when it got as far as Thurlis, there were, I believe, 40 priests on the altar. And again, uh, when he was buried in his, his native Duhalla, um, there was a huge amount of, of uh, orations and and um, at, at his graveside. So, you know, the point was being really forcefully made about how this guy had died uh, because he was in, in jail unfairly. And what was the human and material cost of the flu in Ireland? It's really an interesting question. Um, I've interviewed a lot of people um, who survived it. Uh, and I've also interviewed people who... Um, 
uh, whose family maybe were damaged by it. You know, the, 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 they weren't born at the time, but they could talk about what had happened to their family as a result of it. Um, one thing seems quite clear is that that is um, effectively destroyed or broke up a lot of families because, um, you know, that particular age group that had hit the 25 to 35 year olds in particular, um, like if it killed, um, it could kill the breadwinner in the family which would mean that more typically the male. Um, so what would happen then was the mother might have to go out to work. So what would she do with her kids while she went out to work? Um, often it also meant that people lost their family home. They didn't just lose a parent and the family income, but they lost the family home too, because in those days, the family home often, uh, in a house often came with a job, like for example, um, in school teaching or in, uh, which quite a lot of school teachers died, or in, um, as prison warders, the house would come with the job. Um, I've heard of quite a few families emigrating uh, because they thought it was a good idea to move and get over the sadness of the loss of a mother or maybe two or three children. And then uh, even in my own case, um, or in the case of my own family, uh, we had um, my grandfather's um, cousin and his wife died within two days of each other in North Wexford. And they had a tenant farm. They didn't own it. Uh, so when they died, um, their children lost their home because it was rented and the children were 13 and 14 and they were separated and never spent a night in the same home again for the rest of their lives. And one of them uh, was sent um, to Dublin to relations there. The other went in to um, work with my grandaunts in Enniscorthy and they kept um, a rather grandly called Millen's Hotel, uh, which was a small guest house that kept the traveling players. And she found life working for them. They drove themselves very hard, but they also drove her very hard. Um, so hard that she actually ran away with one of the guests. And um, uh, we connected with her many years later. So that's quite typical of what would happen, that families would be broken up like that. And what, what are the estimates of mortality um, in Ireland between sort of 1918 and 19 and the early 1920s? Um, my estimate is that including the excess pneumonia, you know, more pneumonia than you would find in a normal year, there were about 23,000 died. But I also know of loads of people um, whose families are pretty sure they died from the flu and the dates match, um, but their death certificate doesn't say flu or else there's no death certificate there for them. And uh, my colleague Patricia Marsh is going to be doing some re-estimates in her book and, you know, looking at uh, excess mortality from things like heart disease, etc. I think she's brought up the number to about 32,000. And as a historian, looking obviously at the recent COVID pandemic, what lessons can policymakers uh, learn from historians? Oh, Nice one. Um, I felt a bit like a witch uh, for most of the early part of last year because I was sitting there saying, oh, no, they're not looking at and things like when you'd see, you know, when there was a mask shortage and people were saying, oh, well, the most people most likely to get it are the people who are going to be in an intensive care setting in hospitals and they need to get the masks. And I'm saying, but my data shows that people like postmen and policemen and shop workers were actually as vulnerable as medical people. And uh, so I wrote a lot of editorials and, and, and stuff on, on, on my on my material uh, to try and inform it um, last year. Um, a lot of it, even though we know that um, medicine has moved on immensely, um, uh, a lot of what 
work like mine talks about the sheer scale of how 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 the country's services were completely overwhelmed, how hospitals right around the country then were, were totally overrun, how the shortages of um, you know how, how could you protect doctors to prevent them getting ill because um, in 1918 an awful lot of doctors would get sick and then the replacements would be got for them and then uh, the replacements would get sick and um, that was really a major issue at the time so that there were an awful lot of th- things that that can be learned about it um, uh, and like another one was was on um, a lot of them was to do with logistics and supplies and and to realize um, just how quickly this could spread and what would happen I think one of the great successes um of the last year has been that the number of dead is not anything like um, what happened over the same period in 1918, 1919. There were extraordinary parallels with the, the, the waves we've had. Uh, the timing was almost exactly the same uh, as 1918, 1919. And that's never really happened before. They say that traditionally no two pandemics will have the same rave pattern, regardless of what disease causes them. And my penultimate question, obviously, we are recording um, in the run up to Christmas. It's November. People need Christmas presents. Where can they get your book from? All good bookshops and your local bookstore, but also in places like Amazon or directly from Manchester University Press. Ida, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me on. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.